celebrate the entrance into the holiday season. Okay, good. We are in John chapter 5. And we're going to cover the whole chapter, but we're not going to do it verse by verse. Um, It's dealing with the healing at the Pool of Bethesda. And it's the third sign, although it's not specifically referenced as the third of the seven signs. It is one of the signs that Jesus performs. And beginning with this sign, he uh, initiates some conflict, controversy, uh, opposition from the Jewish leadership. And this will grow, of course, until the time that Jesus ultimately is crucified on the cross. But this uh, is the beginning in the Gospel of John of the opposition of the religious leadership to his ministry in a very overt way. It says in verse 1, sometime later, so this is sometime later after the events that occurred in John chapter 4, it says Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, it doesn't tell us which Jewish festival, but there were three Jewish festivals that every Jewish adult male was to attend. There are actually seven Jewish festivals, but there were three that the Jewish males who were adults were required to attend. That was Passover in the spring, Pentecost 50 days later, and in the fall, the Feast of Tabernacles. So it was one of those three, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, which is exactly what you have to do geographically. If you've ever been to the land of Israel, and some of you have, um, you know that Jerusalem is up on an elevated plain. And from whatever direction you approach it, you ascend to Jerusalem. So Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, and there in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate was a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, or literally the House of Mercy, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one who was there had been an invalid, as Steve mentioned during the King's Kids uh, lesson, for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Now, some of your translations will also include a section that says that every so often the water bubbled up and was stirred. And they believed that an angel was stirring the water and the first one into the water would be healed. Uh, That is not included in all of the translations that are out there. So some people believe that that was uh, put in by a later uh, editor who was trying to communicate why the people were lying around the pool of Bethesda. Regardless, this man had been sick, had been in a paralyzed condition for a long, long time. Stop and imagine 38 years as an invalid, 38 years unable to meet your own needs. 38 years depending entirely upon other people to do for you. That's exactly what was going on for this man. And he's lying here at the pool of Bethesda and Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? And he says, I can't get into the pool when it's stirred. I can't get healed because no one will help me. And so Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured and he picked up his mat and walked. And the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. 
So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and to walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Interesting. These days, if Jesus had done this, I'm sure that he would have had an interview with Judaism today. He would have been promoting himself. He would have been on all of the evening talk shows. But that's not what happened. Jesus slipped away. The man didn't even know who Jesus was. But later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So a couple of points here that I want to draw out. First, this man had been lame for 38 years, as I mentioned, unable to do anything for himself, entirely dependent upon others to take care of him. There was no welfare system in the Jewish nation. It was entirely dependent upon alms and giving of people. And if you didn't receive something, you were in in, in a desperate situation. This man was waiting for someone else to come and to move him from his place there on the porch into the pool. And yet no one would do that for him. He was entirely looking to the strength of other people to assist him to do something that he could not do himself. Now, Jesus comes to him and says, do you want to be well? Now, that seems like an odd question, doesn't it? Someone who's been an invalid for 38 years, doesn't it go without saying that you would want to be well? But Jesus has a very specific reason for asking the man this question. He is drawing this man in. He is arousing his faith. He's beginning to get this man thinking in terms of a different kind of a life. Because that is exactly what happens when we come to Jesus Christ. We have a different kind of life. This man was used to lying on this porch near the pool of Bethesda. He was used to probably being somewhat successful at receiving alms because he had been in this condition for so long. Maybe he was prepared to stay in that position, in that condition, because he had been there so long. And it's an interesting thought. There are a lot of people that really don't want to change their circumstance. Because when you change your circumstance and you step out of that zone of comfort that you have been in for so long, new things happen. Greater expectations arise. And so Jesus is arousing his faith, I believe, when he asks him, do you get, want to get well? Now, faith, the Bible teaches us, is the assurance of things not seen. The evidence of things hoped for. That's Hebrews chapter 11. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So this man, Jesus asked him this question, this man, when he hears Jesus' statement, get up, pick up your mat, and walk, he aligns his will with the will of God. And that's what faith is. That's exactly what faith is. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. When we align our will with the will of God, faith is consummated. 
Faith isn't just, uh, I wish things would change. I wish something else would happen. No, faith is active. Faith is a very active reality. And it's when we align ourselves with what God wants and we put ourselves into submission to His will that faith occurs. And in this particular situation, this man's faith, because he did want to get well, had he not exercised faith here, he would not have been well. He had to do something. He had to exercise his faith. Just as we do, we have to exercise our faith in order to receive anything from God. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So we operate in the kingdom of God by and through faith. So this man did exercise faith. Stop and think about, and we'll come across this in in Scripture a little bit later, where Jesus was in uh, the town of, or the region of Galilee, in Capernaum, and some of the, or excuse me, not Capernaum, Nazareth, where he had grown up. And the people there said, is this not Joseph's son? Is this not the carpenter's son? Don't we know all of his brothers and sisters? He's grown up among us. And Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. And the Bible records that he was not able to perform many works there in Nazareth because of the lack of faith of the people there. So Jesus, even though he was God incarnate, could not perform many miracles there. He healed a few sick folk, it said, but he could not perform the type of works that he intended to perform because the people did not exercise faith. Again, what is faith? It is the evidence of things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen. How does faith come? It comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God in putting our will in alignment with the will of God and believing, trusting, knowing that God is going to act according to His will. So this man is healed as a result. And he gets up and he goes to the temple to worship to give thanks and to praise God. Later, he sees Jesus there. And Jesus says to him a very interesting thing. In verse 14, he says, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, stop and think about that for just a moment. This guy's been lying on his mat for 38 years. How could he have sinned much? Well, what do we know about sin? What do we know about sin? Where does sin originate? The Bible tells us. Sin originates in our heart. Jesus said, out of the heart, all kinds of wickedness and murders and fornications occur. It comes from the heart. So this guy is lying on his mat, but in some fashion, his heart was still filled with sin. Jesus is warning him, don't return to that place of sin. Now see, Jesus receives sinners. Jesus, as the hymn says, is the friend of sinners. And thank God for that. He loves each one of us just the way we are. And we can come to Him as sinners. In, 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 in need of His forgiveness, in need of His healing. 
But Jesus doesn't want us to continue in sin. That is not how the gospel works. Sin has a a definable impact on our lives. The Bible says in in Isaiah 59.2 that our sin has separated us from God. There's this great chasm that exists between us and God because of our sin. It's because of sin that Jesus went to the cross and gave his life. There on the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was forsaken. God had, the Father had turned away from him because he had become sin on our behalf. There is an impact to sin. So we are not to continue in sin when we have been healed from it. And Jesus warns us with regards to that. But so many times, God receives us. He forgives us. And we, just like the dog, return right to our vomit. And our lives look no different the day after we have been forgiven than the day before. So Jesus says to this man, stop sinning, lest something worse befall you. Sin has an impact. There's an impact on the individual. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about how the people were coming together there in Corinth to, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But the rich were not waiting for the poor. And they were eating in front of the poor who had nothing. And they were doing all of this before they received the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. And Paul chastised them because they were not rightly discerning the body of Christ. And they were sinning. And as a result, Paul said, and pay attention to this, listen to this, as a result of their sin, Paul told the Corinthians, many among you are sick, and some of you are even dying because of this ongoing sin. There is an impact to sin in our lives. And we can't ignore that. We can't just blithely go around and say, I'm forgiven by God and do whatever we want to do and expect that there's not going to be a consequence upon us. There is an impact on the individual. There is an impact on the congregation. In the book of Joshua, and many of you know this story, as the the Jews were going into the land of promise, they had just overthrown Jericho. Mighty victory. And after that victory, they were going to go to Ai, which is a very small village. should have been easy for them to overcome. And yet, Ai defeated the Jewish nation. And Joshua tore his clothes. What's going on, Lord? We should have been able to wipe these guys out. And God revealed to Joshua there was sin in the camp. There was a man named Achan who in the conquering of Jericho had taken some things that God had said were devoted to him. And Achan coveted those things and he took them to himself. And as a result, not just Achan was impacted, Achan ended up being stoned along with his family, but the whole Jewish nation was impacted because of that one man's sin. So sin has a consequence. And Jesus is saying to this man who was healed there at the pool of Bethesda, stop sinning, lest something worse befall you. Repentance, church, is 
incredibly important in our lifestyle as believers. In Matthew chapter 4 and in Mark chapter 1, the very first message that Jesus gave with regards to the gospel that he was going to preach and proclaim, you know what the very first word in his, out of his mouth was? Repent and believe the gospel. What is repentance? Repentance simply is agreeing with God. That's really what repentance is. It's saying, God, you are right, and I am wrong, and I am going to align with you. That's what repentance is. Now, I don't know about you, but speaking specifically about myself, I find that I'm in a constant state of repentance. Because I still struggle with sin. I still have issues that I have to overcome in my flesh. And so I'm in a constant state of repentance, agreeing with God that when I get angry and I lose control, that is not right. That is not how God wants me to be. I don't know what your sin is, what you're struggling with, but really as a Christian, repentance has to be the first word out of our mouths as well. We have to be prone, prepared, ready to repent because today most of us are going to sin. And we have to agree with God that we are wrong. Doesn't mean that you're not forgiven. Doesn't mean that God has forsaken you. But it means that if you want to live a fruitful and abundant Christian life, you need to be in agreement with God. That is why Jesus warned this man stop sinning. Develop that attitude of repentance. That's why later in John chapter 8, when Jesus deals with the woman who was caught in adultery, he says the same thing to her. He said to her, woman, where are your accusers? After everyone who wanted to stone her had left. Where are your accusers? And she said, they're gone, Lord. And he said, well, I don't accuse you either. But go and sin no more. So, sin has an impact. Now later the Jews get very upset at Jesus because he has done this on the Sabbath. Now, this was not an accident. Jesus did this healing on the Sabbath intentionally. In fact, Jesus performed many miracles on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, of course, is the Jewish seventh day wherein the Jews were told you are to rest from your work. You are to take it easy. You are to imitate God who created in six days and on the seventh day rested. Likewise, you are to work for six days and on the seventh day you're to look back on your week of work and rest. Jesus here, though, heals this man on the Sabbath. There was also an instant where he healed a withered man's, a hand, a man's withered hand in the synagogue. There was also a time where his disciples were out picking grain on the Sabbath. And in each of those instances, the Jewish leaders were complaining about Jesus and or his disciples because they were doing things on the Sabbath that the Jewish leaders supposed were not allowed by God. Well, you have to understand what had developed in the Jewish nation at this point in time with regards to all kinds of of regulations, but specifically with regards to the Sabbath. The Jews had created 39 different categories of work. 
that could not be performed on the Sabbath. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time just remembering a few things. Imagine trying to remember 39 different categories of work. And I've shared some of this with you guys before. For example, if you spit and the spit landed on a rock, you were okay. That wasn't work. But if you spit and your spit landed on dirt and it became mud, that was labor. If you had a wooden leg or you had uh, dentures, wooden dentures, you had to remove those on the Sabbath because for you to move from one place to another place with the dentures in your mouth or with the wooden uh, leg, you were considered to be working according to, to uh, Jewish law. And they had lost the whole vision, the whole point about what the Sabbath was. Jesus told them that the Sabbath was not, or man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. It was an opportunity for them to rest. And Jesus is pointing out to them that in healing on the Sabbath, he is just doing what his father is doing. And here becomes the, the, the debate, the focus of the debate. And as I said, there's going to be a growing controversy with regards to Jesus. And this healing, actually, we'll be reading about it for a few chapters, being referenced. Jesus, in verse 16, it says that the, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And here's his response. So Jesus, in his uh, response back to the Jewish leaders is telling them why he is doing what he is doing. He said, I am working on the Sabbath because my father is always at work to this very day, and thus I too am working. And for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but because he was calling God his father, making himself equal with God. So here's Jesus' defense. He is saying, I have the authority to do this on the Sabbath because, in fact, I am God. Jesus was not confused about who he was, and the Jewish leaders were not confused about what he was asserting. They understood that he was asserting that he was the Messiah, that he was God, that God the Father uh, what, and he were one. He is God, it says here, because he is doing the activity of God. Verse 19, very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only those things he sees the Father doing. And because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. So Jesus, through activity, is doing what God the Father is doing. That is what he is telling them. And thus, when I work on the Sabbath, it's because the Father is working on the Sabbath. Now, this would have blown the Jewish leader's mind. The idea that God the Father would have been working on the Sabbath. Because, again, they equated it with a day of rest. They equated it with Genesis chapter uh, 2, verse 2, where God rested on the seventh day. Well, he rested from creation. His creation work. But he didn't rest from his work on behalf of people. And in the name of his kingdom, he never stopped working with that regard. So Jesus was God here through identification with the activity of God. Jesus here d demonstrates that he is God because he says he has the power of God. 
It says, verse 21, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so even the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. So Jesus says, just as God can give life and take it away, so too can the Son of Man. So too can I, because I am God. And finally, Jesus says that he identifies his authority because he is God in that he has been committed all judgment. Where is it? It says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, verse 22, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So all judgment is going to sift through Jesus Christ. There will come a a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul told the Grecians there on the Areopagus in in Acts chapter 17 that there's going to come a day when God will judge the world through one man, and that man is Jesus Christ. That is because he was God incarnate, the God-man. Jesus was like us. He lived among us as God. And because of that identification with us, Jesus is able to rightly judge us. We do not have a high priest, the writer to Hebrews said, that cannot identify with our weakness. But we have one who is tempted at every point and yet without sin. So Jesus is God and has authority to do these things because he identifies with the activity of the Father. He has the same power as the Father. And he has been committed all judgment by the Father. So Jesus can do what he wants to do on the Sabbath. That's his point to these Jewish leaders. And then later, he tells them, not only that, but I have witnesses that testify to these realities. Jesus said, I myself have told you these things, but I recognize that my testimony in and of itself is not sufficient because the Jewish law required that testimony not be received except for in the mouth of two to three witnesses. So Jesus accommodates them. He says, even though I've told you these things about my activity, my power, and my judgment, even though I have told you these things, I'm going to give you some other witnesses as well. There's the witness of John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the one that Isaiah prophesied about, the one that uh, Malachi said would come. He testified of me. He was in the wilderness proclaiming, make straight the ways or the paths of the Lord. John said, he must increase, pointing to Jesus, and I must decrease. So John testified of Jesus and who he was. But also there was the testimony of the works that Jesus did that God had given him to do. The Messiah was to perform very specific works when he came. I talked to you last week about all of the prophetic scriptures that pointed to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Well, there are several times where it says very clearly what the Messiah is going to do. Isaiah 35, for example. It talks about the lame leaping as the deer and the blind seeing and the deaf being able to speak or excuse me, here, and the, and the dumb being able to speak. And Jesus tells the Jewish leaders, the works that I do, they testify of me because they are in alignment with what the Bible says would happen. And the Father, Jesus said, is testifying of me at his baptism 
What happened after Jesus came up, came up out of the water and the dove descended upon him? There was a voice that was heard, wasn't there? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then later on the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter, James, and John were, the voice of the Father testified to the Son. And again in John chapter 12, the voice of the Father, like thunder roaring, testified of the identity of Jesus Christ. So there were several instances where supernaturally the Father spoke into creation and the people heard it and he was testifying of his Son. And then finally, Jesus says to them, you search the Scriptures. And this, the Jews certainly did search the Scriptures. They were diligent in studying the Scriptures and giving honor to and respect for the, the Scriptures. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures, and yet these are the very words that speak of me. He said, I'm not going to be your, your accuser on the Day of Judgment. Moses, he will be your accuser. Because Moses was the one who said, I would come and who wrote of me. So the Scriptures speak of Jesus. So he had these five witnesses to the fact that he had the authority to do what he was doing. So here's the key. It's in verse 24. Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. I'm going to read that again. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. The lame man laid on that porch near the pool of Bethesda for who knows how many years until he heard the word of Jesus speaking to him. Pick up your pallet. Get up and walk. And when that man believed those words, his body was infused with power and he did exactly what Jesus told him to do. Likewise, spiritually speaking, we're all lame. We cannot help ourselves. Some people equate the five porches to the five books of Moses and the Pentateuch and the 38 years that the man spent as a, a a paralyzed person to the 38 years that the Jews wandered in the wilderness, illustrating that all of religious behavior gets us nowhere. We remain lost in the wilderness, paralyzed by the house of mercy until we hear the voice of the Lord. But when you hear the voice of the Lord and you believe it and you align your will with God's will, then life is infused into you spiritually speaking and you become a new creature in Christ. All of the old things are passed away. Everything has become new. Is that true for you today? Have you heard the word of the Lord and believed it? I trust that you have. I believe most everyone in here this morning has. But perhaps there is someone yet here this morning or hearing my voice today that has not heard the word of Jesus Christ to them. Get up from your spiritually lame posture. 
Believe the gospel and live. If you hear those words today and you believe them, just as the lame man's limbs were infused with power, so spiritually you will become a new creature in Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of your word and the truth that it contains. Your word refreshes our soul and it gives us wisdom, gives us joy and it enlightens our eyes and endures forever. Your word is righteous. And so I pray, Lord, that each one of us would hear that and that we would believe it and that we would live a life worthy of the calling whereunto we have been called. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.